I love decorative arts. Like, you know, if you're thinking about functionality of something, isn't there a lot of function in feeling good or feeling uh, pleasure at seeing something or feeling pleasure in having a vase in your home that you love? Like there's so, so much beauty in decorative arts. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to a special episode brought to you by Lumens. Today, I'm taking a break from the ultra-serious heavyweights and creativity to connect you with the next generation of designers that will shape the world to come. On this episode, the first of three we'll be doing this year, we'll meet a trio of young talents that are making waves in design each with their own unique story to tell. We'll meet a gallerist in New York who's trying to bring a bit of poetry back into the home and the world of collecting, and an interior designer in Paris who's wowing audiences with trippy, ultra-colorful spaces and furniture. But first up is a curious and bright-eyed interior designer raised in Ireland and now working in the UK, Tola Ojoalape. Her recent design for London's Africa Centre turned heads with its tactile environments, use of color and pattern, and ability to synthesize a look that everyone from across the continent could identify with. She's also worked on hotels and is currently exploring ceramics and other various projects. I caught up with Tola from her flat in London to talk about her travels to Nigeria, what it was like growing up in the bucolic countryside of Ireland, and what kind of obstacles she faces as a young designer entering the field. I guess the way to get started is, um, tell me, like I do with all of my guests, tell me a little bit about your early life. I, I heard that you're raised in Ennis, which is yes. like near Limerick. Yes. Oh my God. I didn't think you would know you would know that at all. But yeah, I I'm <laughs> I've I've gotten very good at Googling okay. uh, Googling towns to make sure I know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um yeah, so I'm Nigerian by birth, but I was raised in Ireland, um, in Ennis County Clare, which is near Limerick City in the southwest of Ireland. Um so all of my formative years were spent in Ireland. Um yeah, my family moved there a very long time ago. We weren't there weren't many black people there and it was just kind of a place that they chose to settle in. Oh gosh. Yeah. And so what was it what was it like growing up there? Was it like a particular I've I've been to that part of the country and it's it's quite beautiful and and serene, of course. It is a little bit like an Irish postcard. Uh Yes, indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so yeah, Ireland is really nice. Ennis is really, really beautiful. It's like near the bar and it's in County Clare. We've got the Cliffs of Moher there as well. So it's definitely a tourist destination. Um, La Hinch, which isn't too far, is also the surfing capital of Ireland. So there is a lot to do. A lot of heritage as well. And Father Ted is actually filmed in County Clare. So oh that's another pull. Yes. And there are some scenes from Ennis um, in Father Ted, which is which is very amusing growing up. Oh, wow. But yeah, so <laughs> um, my um, childhood, I guess, set in the context of that was really, really interesting because we were this Nigerian family. We were like the third black family, essentially, in the town. Um, against this backdrop of this kind of almost coastal Irish town. But it was lovely. It was absolutely beautiful, very suburban, um, had lots of friends. And I guess it's kind of been the foundation, the kind of stability for everything that I've done since. Um, I go back every year and it's just so different to my life now. And it's like, how did we do this? 
but you know, you know, when you're growing up, everything just, it's what you're given that you accept and everything just seems so bliss. <laughs> <laughs> and was there anything, uh, you know, as you growing up that sort of now looking back, maybe was a, a hint of, of, you know, you starting a design career? Um, so I think when I was in school, I wanted to study architecture, actually. And I went to an all-girls Catholic school. And I it was my career guidance counsellor who actually pushed me towards interior architecture. So I think kind of my formative and my design kind of what kind of led me to the path that I'm on started in the secondary school that I went to. And I didn't like physics and I was studying physics at the time and I thought I needed it for architecture. And she was a very diligent um, teacher and really kind of looking back, I think she was probably like a feminist and really believed in kind of women kind of taking their own path. And she was great. She found this course called Interior Architecture, which is in Sligo, um, which is kind of kind of northwest part of um, Ireland. And she said, you know, I think this is not as technical as architecture Maybe There's a bit more art and your grades and kind of what you're doing looks like it gravitates towards that. And how about I take you and a few other students there to have a, you know, to, to the open day. And that was how it all began, really. Um, I ended up studying interior architecture in Sligo for five years. And, and then after that, I read that you you, you did spent some time in Italy. Yes. So I studied at Politecnico di Milano, the Bovisa campus. was there for about a year. And I think that kind of began kind of the lens and the kind of sharpening of my eye with design and real appreciation for design. Um, obviously, one of my lecturers actually studied in the same campus and recommended it. And my friend and I, who I grew up with actually in Ennis Town and ended up studying with, we lived in Milan and studied in Milan. And it was amazing. It was kind of just seeing the fashion, kind of spending, learning Italian um, in Lake Como and the food and just design was just incredible. Um, I remember distinctly like the retail stores really standing out, like Roberto Cavalli was quite big at the time, Victor and Rolf were doing amazing things and their stores were just incredible. And even the students and the you know university was just beautiful and really design led and uh, yeah i think at that point i said i really want to do this <laughs> and someone who you know may perhaps are from the states or just had not heard of the africa center before uh tell us uh, about that yeah so the africa center interestingly when i moved to london in 2012 i actually went to the center um just because it was a hub for kind of people Africans in diaspora to kind of meet. It is an institution that has existed since 1961, I believe, and was a real hub for kind of thinkers and makers and photographers and artists from the continent to kind of meet, kind of discuss kind of diaspora, African diaspora and issues and beyond. And so they had a new building in the centre of London in a place called Southwark, Having been in the centre of London, Covent Garden, for since the 60s, essentially, um, they had an ambition to kind of use it as a platform to kind of promote kind of the rise of contemporary African design. They reached out to me because they had seen some work that I had done kind of over the last five years um, across kind of contemporary African design. And I had a blog actually years ago when I started traveling back to the continent where I was kind of documenting the rise of um, contemporary African design and this kind of pull and shift towards it. Tell me about the, the you know, your travels to Africa when you were kind of, you know, at, you're, you're essentially a tourist and you're kind of going around to lots of different places. 
Um, what did you learn about that with sort of fresh eyes as a designer? You know, like what does Pan-African design mean to you? Because if they asked you to kind of bring up a, a Pan-African vibe to the center in London, that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So, and I'm sure that a lot of people gave you <laughs> their opinions. What did you kind of, what is your impression from like visiting all the different places in the continent that you did? Yeah, interestingly, I had not been back to the continent since I was, I moved to Ireland. So I did go um, upon graduating and I went to Nigeria first. I think I did not realize how cosmopolitan um, the African continent was. Like Lagos, for example, is, and I think has always been a real metropolis. Um, it's a melting pot of various, you know, people, countries. It's quite diverse. And I think, I suppose, the connection to the UK has made it kind of very relevant over the years. So that was my first kind of impression. And and art was huge. I think now more than ever, we see how visible it it is. However, 10 years ago, it was like that as well. And I think at that time, um, a famous Nigerian artist actually sold um, at Sotheby's and that really kind of jump-started everything that we see today. So I knew upon kind of landing this Africa Centre project that had to be um, a big part of the space. However, when I started going to kind of East Africa, I found that the tone was completely different to West Africa, whereas West Africans or Nigerians can be quite, you know, confident and quite, you know, brash and really kind of <laughs> loud potentially, whereas East Africans are considered, well, just a lot softer. Um, the design style was a bit more refined. Um, but consistently, there's kind of a love for craftsmanship and kind of materiality and tactility and I spent some time in Senegal as well. And there you saw a strong kind of colonial French influence. There were parts that literally felt like you could be in Cuba. So the the African continent really, in conclusion, is a myriad of um, experiences, a myriad of kind of cultures, tapestries and layers of kind of beauty. And I decided for the Africa Centre project, this was what it needed to be rather than maybe, you know, the demonstration that we may see here where everything is really colorful and super bright, which there is that vibrance that exists um, on the continent. Absolutely. But I felt consistently across board, it needed to be a celebration of that kind of human touch and that love for kind of the earth and materiality and tactility. And I think the fact that it was a unified approach was very was well met by the board of the Africa Center because it didn't mean that it was kind of been limited to a part of the continent and therefore the rest of the continent would be um, left out. And and to get a little bit technical, uh, there's this fantastic sort of indigo sort of clay plaster and that sort of color shows up a lot um, that people really have sort of gravitated to. And you, you've you used that sort of indigo color before in your work. And I'm just curious, like, uh, where did that love of this sort of like deep, it's like this like very, very deep sort of indigo blue come from? Yes, I'm so proud of this indigo because I fought for it. <laughs> um, so as part of my sojourn to the continent, um, I found an artist called Nikkei. Um, she actually owns an art center in Lagos. And she was this woman who championed kind of artisan cloth making in the southwest of Nigeria in the 60s and has traveled with it for decades, kind of 
supporting kind of women in diaspora to kind of have a skill and have a craft. And the cloth that she makes is quite a celebrated cloth in um in Nigeria. However, across the continent, this indigo blue comes up quite a bit. So you have artists in Mali who use it quite a bit. You have people in Mozambique who use this color. And also in um, South Africa, this indigo blue is quite a rich and respected color. And it felt quite natural to use it as a contrast to a lot of the terracotta and kind of earthy colors. Um, that one would see in the Africa Center. And I felt quite confident to be able to use it because I had been experimenting with it for a number of years. And I think it was very timely to kind of, the fact that it was this woman um, who, this matriarch essentially of artisan cloth, it just built the narrative and the story that we were trying to tell with the space um, very well. And uh, I'm Going back to your your days uh, in Ennis and and uh, what does your your parents must think of um, all of your success? Um, <laughs> it's so funny because my family are they've been incredibly supportive and they're you know design is not really an, a course that most Nigerian children will do. Actually, however, there are more kind of Nigerian designers being visible, but I think my family have always been very open. So they've been incredibly supportive. Um, I'm thankful that this design route has actually done something for me because architecture um, is the only other thing that they kind of recognized years ago. <laughs> In Nigerian households, you're usually a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, an engineer. So, yeah. Uh, you're, uh, yeah, it sounds very familiar yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to many people, I'm yes. sure. But, uh, and when it comes to, you know, being, I wanted to ask you this because you're, you know, you have a, you know, a burgeoning studio. You're doing a lot of amazing work. Um, you're based in London, and we're coming out of this pandemic period. You know, where the country is dealing with uh, Brexit and inflation, and uh, and now it's sort of like a cost of living crisis and an energy crisis and all sorts of crises all happening at once. Um, as someone who's running a small business and and a growing creative practice. You know, what is what are your obstacles in a very sort of ground level kind of way? And what do you think the industry can do, the design industry at large can do to help someone like you? I think that for young people like myself who are starting up, I always say that I don't think that in design school we are thought kind of the financial side of things. Um, I think it's a real shame. For designers like myself who are up and coming, having that understanding of kind of how the finances work, unless one is kind of erudite and kind of chooses to be smart and literate in that area, it can be an obstacle. And therefore, growing your team or growing your brand or knowing how to cost for things can be challenging. So for me, that's a cap that I've had to be very intentional um, in kind of wearing and really kind of surrounding myself with that knowledge and really kind of bringing someone on board to really kind of support me and kind of educate me in, in ways that I may not know. It, well, in London, I think that the design industry, just because of the nature of how it is, it can be quite segregated. So although like even commercial design is a thing, hospitality is very different from kind of workspace design and very different from residential design, but they cut across <laughs> quite easily. So I wish it was more unified and maybe kind of knowledge sharing platforms were more kind of made readily available for up and coming studios. And 
What would you say is the number one thing people really need to understand about you as a designer? You know, if they had one takeaway from this, uh, what would what would you say that you would want them to understand about uh, you? I would say that whilst the Africa Center, I believe, is my breakout project into the industry, the work that I do spans across board. I work across various mediums of design and it would be easy to look at me and think well she can only do kind of African design whatever that means to the next person but actually the work that I do is very contemporary and has a contemporary lens and um, throughout and really tries to kind of wear a worldview and kind of a considered yeah thought through um, in its approach and kind of delivery. Before we return to the program a word from our sponsor Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and esthetes have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. One of the very helpful features on Lumens.com is the ability to shop by different styles of contemporary designs, from mid-century modern to Scandinavian. So if you're completely awestruck by our guest this season, Axel Vervoort, and his muted tones and terracotta fabulousness, Perhaps you might want to explore the rustic modern styles on the site. There you'll find pieces from pendants and dining tables to one of my favorites, the Domus Lounge Chair by Artec in the vintage-looking honey-stained option. To get started outfitting your own rustic manse, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. My next guest is a budding visionary from Paris who channels the city's avant-garde sensibility in all the right ways, Julien Saban. The young designer stands out amongst his French contemporaries that, let's admit it, have stuck to lots and lots and lots of beige. Instead, his firm Euchronia creates spaces that are bursting with color and often mixing unusual materials, shapes, and patterns in ways that push all the boundaries. It's working. In just a few years, he's created various retail environments for brands like Sonia Riquiel, a pop-up vegetarian spot at the Galleries Lafayette, and notably Forest, the cafe at the Museum of Modern Art in Paris. I caught up with Julian from his growing studio to discover his process, his aspirations for the future, and just what it's like to live inside one of his colorful creations. So you're from Paris originally, uh, right? You're, were you born in Paris? I was born in Paris and I left Paris uh, a decade ago when I, I, I moved to the UK to study. And uh, in between all of that, I traveled also around the world. So I moved to the US in uh, 2010. I did an internship there. Then I moved to South America, to Buenos Aires, where I did also an internship and I volunteered and also in Australia. And I studied in the UK at the Architecture Association, which is uh, for me uh, the best school. And what made you want to travel so much and work in different places? I, I honestly, I've always uh, traveled. And uh, the thing that uh, I was lacking in France was uh, to uh, speak uh, English. 
So when I turned 18, I was like, okay, I need to do something. So I went to Australia and I did a working holiday, which is this visa that allow you before you're 26 to go to Australia for a year or two years to travel. And you're able to work like 30 hours per week, which means that you can actually earn money and uh, live there. So I did that to be better in English. And from that... Uh, when I turned 21, I've never been to the US and I really, I had a, a few friends that were living there. So I was like, okay, I need to find an internship and move there for a few months. So I managed to move to New York. I did a really shitty internship, but it allowed me uh, to be able to be in the US. And I was crashing at my friend's place in uh, Chinatown, which was at the time extremely funny. And cool. <laughs> and then from that, I moved yeah. to South America because uh, I thought uh, I would live my entire life in uh, Buenos Aires, which is still a dream. But uh, with the economic crisis and everything there, I really don't think it would be a good idea. But still, uh, I love it. Amazing. And so when you went to the to the Architectural Association um, in London and, and did Ukronia come from that? Yeah. So when I, so this school is brilliant. So you, you, so you have to work a lot before being accepted. Like you have like four interviews. It's quite intense. But once you get there, it's by units. So you choose tutors that are truly amazing. Like uh, four years ago, they had Virgil Abloh that was one of the tutors. You had uh, Kupil Mablo, Zahadid, like for all of really renowned architect were a teacher there and basically you pick which teacher you want and each teacher has some kind of topic each unit has 12 people so you apply and then you do even more interviews so you either accepted or not and uh, i got accepted in uh, in this unit that the um, tutor was uh, Tayan Mastan and Inigo Mins Inigo Mins i don't know if you know punch drunk but his uh, sister founded Punch Drunk. Punch Drunk, it's the same as uh, the Macari Hotel in uh, Sleep No More in New York. Anyway, so they were oh, okay. all about uh, performative architecture, really interesting. So I rather, normally you change every year units, but I'm because they went from intermediate to diplomat, that's boring. I stayed in the same unit towards my entire studies, which was really amazing because it allowed me to really develop uh, what I wanted to do. And the theme in this class was really um, developing your own interests and developing what could be your future office. So when I entered there, like you did a lot of exercises, met a lot of people. And that's where I uh, came across uh, the term Uchronia, which I really appreciated, this idea of uh, living outside of time and stuff. So from that, I was like, Okay, that's something that really interests me. And by the end of my studies, when I did my diploma, for me, it really felt natural to use the name and everything that I've studied to create my own office. And so uh, how do you describe uh, your practice today? Like, what, how is your studio set up? And, and how do you describe it to someone who doesn't know you? So my, my, studio, is, my studio is a multidisciplinary collective that works within... Uh, architecture and interior design, what I really wanted to do was to create places of experiences. So for me, it was all about experiences. So when you enter a Ukrainian project, building, whatever, you really enter 
into an experience. And it was the idea of removing the technique and the creativity. Because most of the time when you're a student, you draw crazy shape or crazy things. And people always tell you like you won't be able to to produce those as architectural elements. And what I'm really trying to do is really to combine both and to show to people that it's actually possible to make something crazy a reality. And that's something that interested me all of my studies. And nowadays, that's really something that I'm trying to push. Um, the idea of a collective was really important for me because it was the idea of gathering young talents. In London, it's very different than Paris. But in London, everyone, if you apply for a job, you will get an interview. Then you can have it or not, the job. But you always get an interview. In Paris, it's very different. No one talks to you if you're no one. And it's really hard to like push this line. And that's something that I do as well in my office. Everyone is under 30. I'm also, I'm turning 30 next year. But like for me, it was really important to have people that I consider talents, like people applying for jobs, but not necessarily with like a lot of experiences. I've worked in this and that. That's not what I'm interested. I'm really interested in people that are really creative and that want to do something of uh, that is freed from all the boundaries. And because I've never worked in an office properly before, when I set up my studio, I really didn't want to have rules. Like everyone is at the same level. And we really have this sense of freedom. When I'm with my team and we're designing, we're designing and then we're like, okay, is this possible? Is it not? And uh, most of the time it happens to be possible. And it's the same for our furniture line. My dream was to have a furniture line that was made with only French craftsmen. So everything is produced in France. And when we started it, a lot of people were like, it's impossible to do that. The prices, all of a lot of things and then we managed to pull it out and now it's becoming like 20 to 30 percent of the income of the company which is really great and that was the same idea to push the boundaries and say okay we produce in france we managed to have amazing craftsmen with like crafts that are most of the time forgotten and together with my team we're really uh, building a this uh, dream, which is Ukraine. Now we're 10 people working at the office. We also have a really cool uh, building, which is called Chateau Ukraine. It means the castle. So we have this small building in Montmartre, which has six floors and each floor has a different vibe. We have a showroom. We have a small workshop, a kitchen, obviously, and then like a big material tech and stuff. And for me, it was really, again, part of this storytelling and this history of Ukraine that I really wanted to have. Most of our craftsmen are within, like some of them we can walk to their atelier, which is amazing. And most of them are in the region of Paris. So like less than 40 minutes away from Paris. And when it comes to a lot of your projects have this sort of like really strong sense of color and and shape. And I'm wondering, you know, is are you inspired by a kind of like a, like a 60s aesthetic or a little bit of a Memphis 80s aesthetic like or a little bit of everything a little bit of everything but memphis is definitely the reason why i've done architecture so uh, my my family is really not into architecture but uh i don't know why my grandparents always had some like decoration magazine since always but that has never been a thing for them like they're not stylish or whatever so i've always I always read those magazines 
and for me the aesthetic of Memphis and the 80s has always been part of my vocabulary and the things that interested me then regarding uh, the color obviously this group and uh, this uh, era had a lot of colors but as myself I always painted my room in very vibrant color and part of my study was to do a color therapy and it's something that I truly believe uh, living in a colorful place really changes your mood and the way you live and that's something for me which is extremely important to remove a bit of this white style beige style that is everywhere uh, we kind of go completely against and all of our spaces that we develop uh, interior apartments or restaurants are always always have vivid color and our favorite color i mean my favorite color is orange and that's kind of the leitmotiv or each one of the project so this project the restaurant forest is very different from the rest of our portfolio yet in terms of color and forms yet it's the one project that informed us on how to work at a really high level with french craftsmen and for me that's this project is still one of my favorite because of that mm. and i mean do you as a young designer i mean your your studio really does stand out because i feel like there's so many young studios but they all kind of share a similar you know beige spirit if you will is it hard do you find it hard being uh has that has that been a challenge for you like is it do or it's, is that uh, actually a good thing that you kind of honestly, stand out? What, what I found at the beginning, so I moved to Paris only two years ago before I was doing London and Paris. So when I've done the project of the Museum of Modern Art, I was still living in London and I had a small office in Paris. And that was really important because in London, I always felt free, more free than in Paris because Paris is very severe, very strict. And even in terms of architecture and design, it's still very niche and like there is one st style that people accept and not the other one. So living in London for like seven years really allowed me to develop my agenda and the things that I enjoy. And I, when people contact us to do projects, I really ask them the question, do you know what we do as an office in terms of colors, shapes and everything? Because that's something I'm really not ready to compromise because it's... I've, and also now I realize that that's where people come to us for is for our sense of color and shapes. And that we're now, after three years, I can say that a lot more people come to us also because of that, which is really cool. And that's what uh, the studio is about. So I'm really pushing it more and more. But I realize that now a lot more people are willing to have not beige boucle interior and in terms of restaurants, what we do also kind of stand out from other uh, projects because we're not scared. And that's something that is really important in my studio is that when we do something, what I like to provoke is um, uh, emotion, whether you hate it or you love it. I, lo I really enjoy when people hate our project because it means that it provoked something to them. And I think that what I believe architecture is, it's all about emotion. And if it provokes emotion, good or bad, that's what I want. If you do a project and no one sees it, that's for me boring. Whereas what we try to do is to we dare to do a project that are different. And I love our um, clients for that as well. 
because they allow us to do like really fun, weird things. Mm -hmm. What's the weirdest thing you ever did? My apartment is, uh, it's, it's not finished yet. We've been uh, doing it for over a year. No, not one wall is in uh, with white, let's say. And it was really a testing ground in every single possible way. And that's why it's delayed so much is because we really tried a lot of ideas. And it, we, because it was for us, we're not in a hurry, but now we're in a hurry. And it really feels like interesting and very strange. And even when I go on site uh, now and now it's almost finished, I, uh, I realized that cool and good things take a long time. And that's something I really push my clients to understand. Like, for instance, the restaurant of the Museum of Modern Art it took us two years to develop. But there was the pandemic in the middle. But still, it went. It was a very long time. Or when we do apartments now, it's minimum a year. And that's something I really tell my clients. Because if you do something quick, you will never get it perfect. And now we're really going towards like doing really good projects. Not a lot of projects, but extremely uh, good quality and amazing detail that when people live there, they really understand why they spend uh, so much time doing it. When you're working on these residential projects, you know, because they are so colorful and they are so different um, than a lot of other designers in Paris at the moment, I'm curious if what do the homeowners give you as like a feedback? Like how does, honestly, what do they tell you it's like to live in a space like that? Honestly, each time we develop, so we did like three really cool uh, apartments for me. And each time someone entered the flats, they always said, oh my God, it looks exactly like the person that lives there. And for me, it's the best compliment you can get. And honestly, all of the clients that we had uh, living in their places really like it because we don't just do a crazy color and form. I believe that we really respect the ethos of the client, yet we propose them something that they would never have imagined. And most of the time, I mean, all the time, the clients and their friends or family or whatever always say, oh my God, it's something I wouldn't have imagined them living there, yet it fits so much their personality and the way they live. And that's for me the best uh, compliment we can get. And that's something when you know uh, the people that we've done projects for really always tell us it's crazy how you managed to do something that was the vibe and uh, the personality of the client, which for me is the best compliment to have. Uh, you personally, like, I mean, to have such a, a vibrant and a kind of a, an inspired portfolio of projects. I'm wondering how you, as a young designer, how do you stay uh, inspired? Like, what do you do in your free time? Uh, I wish I had free time. <laughs> uh, I don't really have free time, but I think what I love is that people are contacting us for very, very, very different projects. So we've done a lot of restaurants, but each time it was different, either the theme or the type of restaurant that we're doing. So now we're calming down in terms of restaurants because we've done like, I think, 15 or 20. For interior apartments, we get really inspired by the place as it is. And also we only do two or three apartments per year, which is really not a lot. And we really, really think about what we're doing. The furniture line is really my thing. 
uh, myself, like myself, that I develop on the side, and all that kind of small collaboration, meeting uh, new manufacturer, new people, really brings always new energy because. For my personal time, I still, I think I still have like 20% of my time meeting new people or artisans. So that's something that each time I meet someone, we have quite a cool library downstairs of uh, materials and stuff. For my team, it's really like we discuss always the material and we're like, oh my God, that would be so cool to develop and stuff. So because the projects are so broad and also also, we speak English at the office. So my husband is not working with us, but he's Australian. And because I was uh, educated with uh, British uh, education, everyone speaks English and everyone comes from a different part of the world. So I believe that our references are all very different. And that's something I really enjoy. Because it's not everyone is Parisian and we all have the same reference. Everyone comes from different parts of the world, which I believe allow us to have very different uh, references. And before COVID, I used to travel a lot. I'm quite happy I don't travel that much. But like, for instance, going to Australia every uh, December for a few weeks is so fresh. Yet the design scene in Australia is a bit underrated and it's completely amazing. Moreover, in Melbourne, for me, it's totally incredible what's happening there. So when I go there, I always meet like really cool architect people I would like to work with. So that's also the kind of thing that allow, always allow us to be create, creative, I think. And um, what's next for your studio? Do you want to do more residential? Do you want to develop that more? I mean, obviously, you're doing so much at the moment. So where would you like, where would you see yourself? Where would you like to see your your studio in maybe uh, five uh, years? Let's say. Uh, so now we're doing a hotel, which was really exciting. Which is really exciting. That was a first. I mean, honestly, this year we crossed a lot of things I really wanted to do. I really wanted to work for a major fashion house, and we worked with Sonia Riquel, which is quite famous yet has really. We have a very similar DNA in terms of being very French, very Parisian, working with excellent crafts. So that for me was a dream because we develop a concept that is going to be across the world. That was for me a huge, huge dream. Having our furniture line as well and sending pieces, like yesterday we sent pieces to the US, to Australia. That's for me completely completely crazy to sell things to people I've never met that I don't know that are going to have our pieces in their place. That's for me, honestly, a dream. Something that I'm trying to push also is to work now more in the UK and in the US. I mean, in the UK, I really want to start going back there because I believe that's where I'm from and that's a place that I really enjoy. And uh, I don't think uh, I have dreams in this way. We worked with some brands that I can say right now that are completely crazy for what we're doing. And that's something that was really a dream. And for me to continue working with incredible clients, that's something that I really appreciate. And what I like is that every day is different at the office. Before we return to the program, another word from our sponsor, Lumens. The incredible site has one designer-friendly feature that I find totally helpful. Not only can you sort your shopping results by color, but also by finish. So if you're inspired by our former guest, fashion giant Zandra Rhodes, and her penchant for eye-popping color in all things, 
and want to indulge on pieces in Viva Magenta, Pantone's color of the year, let's say, you can do that at Lumens. Or perhaps you're inspired by the indigo tones of one of our guests today, Tola Ojolape. By shopping their navy collection on the site, you can find pendants in the handsome color or even a bold dining chair by Mario Bellini for Heller. So no matter what color you're hunting for, a coat rack in green or a bed in paprika red, visit lumens.com to find the right design for your home or project. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. Sometimes the world of collecting can really feel like a booming industrial enterprise. And in the process, a bit of emotional depth can be lost. But my final guest today, Jacqueline Sullivan, is fighting back. She started her own eponymous gallery in the cutthroat New York scene that brings a touch of humanity, poetry, and even a tinge of subversiveness back into the field. And she's not shy about using the phrase decorative arts either, a pair of words that many avoid. At her Tribeca Gallery, you might find ceramics inspired by industrial stoves, sartorial creations meant to dress a chair, or glass sculptures shaped like sea creatures. I caught up with Jacqueline from her gallery to chat about her time in South America, how she defines her practice today, and the emotional quotient she feels is so key to collecting. Before you started this gallery, tell me a little bit about your life that led up to it. Yeah, um, so I am from Massachusetts. Where in Massachusetts? In Sudbury, Massachusetts. Okay. So I've always been really interested in like historical design and the past, because uh, that's kind of like my vernacular there. My mother was a huge collector of design and was had such good taste. She was from Illinois, but like... What kind of things did your mom collect? Mostly like 17th and 18th century, like English and American design. Oh, okay. Because, you know, that... It, that sort of American, you know, American traditional revival of the 80s and 90s was <laughs> kind of going on. Like, um, was it like Shaker? And did you, was there anything like that uh, in the house? Oh my God, no. No. I mean, my mom, like, she was, she was somebody that grew up with like, in Illinois with casseroles and, and things like that. And I think that she was um, always really interested in furniture and decorative arts. And so she kind of like really encouraged me to think about objects in a way that I hadn't considered them before because she was, she was really lovely in the way that she thought about, she took me to historical homes. Like we were always going to historical homes in Massachusetts, like the Gropius house, um, Walter Gropius, who was a professor at Harvard, and we would go there. Um, and it was just beautiful to see different interpretations and approaches to design in terms of, of living with things in a way that like felt good. It didn't necessarily need to be functional. It just needed to, I don't know, it, it just was a really interesting place to grow up, I think. And what did you study in school? In college. Uh, so I actually took some time off. It's kind of a weird thing about me, but I, I actually took time off after high school and I moved to Argentina where I hiked Mount Aconcagua. I was a mountaineer and it's one of the, the seven summits in the world. So Aconcagua is the, the highest um, peak in South America. And so I did that for a while. I lived in Argentina. I learned Spanish. And then um, I went to USC in California and LA. I was deciding between Middlebury 
and USC. And I felt like if I went to Middlebury, I would study like environmental science or something. And I just really wanted to get into art. And so I was a poetry major and an art history major as well. So it was a double major. Why poetry? (laughs) Because I'm a very, uh, it's something that I've always loved uh, in my life. Uh, I love the connection between writing and human experience. And that's kind of how I approach also the collections in terms of I don't know. It's kind of, I think of, of people feeling really like, you can call me a sap, but like kind of uh, emotional about things that they love or, or what it means to them in terms of people that they loved that treasured certain things or... I don't know. I I feel like there's like a really big connection between literature and like interiors. And I don't really know how to explain it. And so after school, like did you where you worked in the art world? Yeah. So I went to USC and then I didn't like L.A. that much. Um, I liked it in a lot of ways, but I moved to London and I did the Sotheby's program for decorative arts and design. And I realized I just love decorative arts. And I got really annoyed that every one would talk about how decorative arts were like feminine or like for women. It just became this kind of thing with design that I felt um, at odds with. Well, it's it's like everything is sort of, especially when you're talking about the decorative arts and, and you're talking about anything related to making or domesticity or anything is related to all sorts of uh, connections, I'm sure. And so what made you want to open the gallery? And when did you open the gallery? If you can give me the the quick timeline. Yeah, yeah. So we, we opened in September. And uh, this was a project that's been in the works for like two years. So we kept pushing the launch. During the pandemic, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a lot of work. And I had an ex-boyfriend who is an architect who once told me that I should just be a patron at some point in my life, like when I'm like 85. He was like, you just like love to like find people that you love their work and want them to make things for you. And I kind of made it a career now. (laughs) So I'm working with people that are so lovely and so excited to kind of like respond to a brief and The first collection, for example, was based on a Gertrude Stein poem. Obviously, uh, it was called uh, Tender Buttons, but it was Substance in a Cushion. And I feel like people really responded to that in a really exciting way. What was some of the feedback that you got from that show? I don't I don't know if I heard all the negative feedback because I'm, you know, the owner. Uh, so maybe some people. Well, the good feedback. Let's focus on the good feedback. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like people felt like it was refreshing. I don't want to I never want to be negative about other places or, you know, when you do a profit and loss summary and all this stuff, you're always thinking about like how, like what you're doing differentiates you from other people in, in the, in the world. But I, I do think though, that like, I just thought I had a voice to offer that people would like. It wasn't that I was like negative about anybody else. I mean, I love all of them. Like I go to these galleries and stuff, but I didn't want to be a showroom and I never really wanted to be a gallery. I just wanted people to come and see things that they might like and 
be interested in, in terms of seeing it in context with really historical design. Like it's interesting for me for a contemporary artist to be placed in context with like a, a chair from the 1500s. Like that's interesting. And so you're not just working with like, you know, craftsmen and designers per se, but you're also working with fine artists, but you're kind of, you're kind of looking at them or presenting them in a very sort of domestic kind of environment. Is that fair to say? Or through our, through a decorative arts lens in a sense. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I'm just trying to like think about people in terms of not having like necessarily a designation of like a fine artist or a decorative artist or whatever, but thinking about people that I just love to work with that I really admire. Is there anyone out there in the art and design world that you really admire that you don't work with now? Someone maybe could be someone super famous. I mean, you know, who out there do you think is like that you really if they if they had a show up in New York that you would you would, you know, drop everything to go see? Um, so I've admired this guy forever and he came to an event and he spoke at like we did a salon. I adore Eric Mack. He's incredible. He's a, a textile artist and I lived in California and I literally flew back to New York to see his show at the Brooklyn Museum. He's incredible and I just adore him. And he spoke, we, we did a salon a few weeks ago and he spoke and I just, uh, yeah, I think he's the best. He's amazing. And he creates these sort of, I'm now just looking it up as, as we're, as we're chatting. Uh, he creates, I mean, with textiles, he seems like he creates these sort of like assemblages in a way. He's incredible. Like, he's it's incredible. almost like, yeah, like quilting, but in a totally non-functional way. <laughs> yeah, no, sense. I mean, and I don't know if like function is necessarily like the, end game you know hmm. what would you say like what, what are your hopes and dreams for this gallery like what, what what do you want to like accomplish with it or like just like what do you feel like you want your gallery to be known for that's which is another way of saying it i think i want people to feel like design and decorative arts are accessible in a certain way like my mother once told me that taste is based off of uh money 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 creates taste and i think access creates taste what i think is it would be nice i've met so many amazing people while we've been open that are just interested in the pieces and the process and the materials i think i just would love people to feel comfortable with the gallery and as if like it's a home when i look through all of the different pieces in, that you have had at the gallery they're all a little bit different there's nothing there that's kind of like basic looking if you if you know what i mean like is that kind of a like there's nothing that's just like a minimal looking chair like everything is <laughs> everything is pushing a material or a concept into a, a new dimension and so is that kind of transgressive or almost sinister kind of part like a uh, part of you and the way you kind of want to express yourself through this gallery? Yeah. So, you know, obviously there was a concept behind um, when I approached contemporary designers and it was from the Gertrude Stein poem, Substance in a Cushion. Uh, well, Tender Buttons, but it was the chapter Substance in a Cushion. And I felt like I wanted contemporary artists to experience or like explore and experience materiality 
in a way that was like, what does matter mean to you? Like, does it mean what matters? What, you know, how you, like, do you want to work in a different material? And it was a really, really eye-opening experience uh, to work with these artists because I felt like, A, they, like, trusted me so much in a way that they had no idea who I was. And they had no idea what this gallery would look like. And so I will ever, like, I will forever be grateful to them that they they were willing to to work with me. But I also feel like that was kind of the whole prompt was to kind of like explore something that they hadn't before. But going back to my question, is that part of, is that kind of almost sinister element to this or almost kind of like a danger zone of like part of. Are you calling me dark? uh, (laughs) Are you, do you think of yourself as dark? And I I wasn't going to say dark because it's not really dark, but there is a kind of, there's a little bit of a dark, a little bit of a dark element, at least in like the photography and the way that it's styled and, you know, the chair that has like a dress to it. It's nothing is, you know. But what do you mean by dark? Nothing you're going to find in a home store in Connecticut. Like there is no antiquing. We go find this little shop in the middle of the country and we find a lovely vase and we take it home. None of that. Like everything here is like challenging the viewer in some way. I think that's true. Thank you for realizing that. There are choices that I make. And I think the choices that I make are representative of the person that I am. And people seem to like it because I feel like it's not easy. I think there's a a challenge that I, that that's why I started this, that I think I want people to think about things. Yeah, if I wanted to open a gift shop and somewhere and sell things, I probably would make a lot more money, but, um, (laughs) but that was, that's not how I feel fulfilled. I want my life to have meaning and yeah, I've been through a lot of stuff and you know, if I cancer and I, I do feel like I, this is kind of a project that I believe in and it, it represents me and my taste and people seem to like it. So that's good. And if you had to describe uh, your gallery in three words, that's my last question. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I would say curiosity, cozy, <laughs> and um, friendship. Is that weird? Sounds stupid. No. But like, I so- feel like people that come here, they hang out for like an hour and a half. And I can never get any work done because I'm always hanging out with people and just like come and hang out at the table. A special thanks to Tola, Julian, and Jacqueline, as well as our sponsor Lumens for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm-hmm.